0: Mark and Mandy, uh, would you guys come and join me on the platform here this morning? And can Isaac, can you grab me that book right there? Oh, never mind. I got it. I got it. Um, Mark and Mandy are incredible people. And um, come on, give them a round of applause. And we truly can't imagine Celebrate Church um, without them and without uh, their ministry in the body of Christ. Um, They're developing teams right now for sound and media. Uh, They've been involved in our worship ministry. Mandy serves in our Celebrate Kids ministry. Uh, They've even helped clean the church a few times. Uh, They really have their fingers in a lot of things, and we love that about them. They've been in our church now for over a year. Uh, Their first uh, experience with us was on a New Year's Eve during a party, and um, what's that? And they still came back. Um, They still came back, and um, so that was New Year's Eve uh, over a year ago. And uh, they've been part of our church ever since then. Um, Some of you might know, but for those of you that don't know, um, last week we talked, or in the previous few weeks, we talked about taking up a special love offering uh, for Mark and Mandy because in the 15 months that they've lived in the house that they've lived, they've been robbed four times. And so we thought that it was really important. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says that we ought to do good to everyone we have opportunity to especially those who are in the house of faith. And I've got to tell you, I am honored as your pastor because I know that our church is a giving church, a generous church. I know that some of you gave out of your lack or your need in order to bless them. So today I want us to give them the gift that was received last week, which was over $2,000 to bless them. In the Lord good? See what happens when we trust him, right? When we're in the family of God and what he does. So I'm so thankful. And I know they are too. You can tell it on their face. They are so thankful. This money's going to be used for them whatever way they need to. I think they're trying to plan a move <laughs> out of the place that they've been robbed four times. But we are so thankful for them being in the house of the Lord. I'd love for us to just pray a a prayer of blessing over them and Sean and Dylan uh, and what the Lord is doing in their lives. Father, today we thank you for Mark and Mandy. We thank you for bringing them from Texas, from the long, long, far away of Texas into Clinton, Mississippi. We thank you that you brought them into the family of faith here in this house. And we thank you, Lord, every one of us in this room who gave and who partook in that offering. Lord, I thank you for the gifts that were received. And God, I pray that you would even multiply that gift for the furtherance of your kingdom, that you would help them in their transition, moving here in town somewhere else and in all the replacement of the items that were stolen. God, we thank you that you are a faithful God. And as we are in your family, we're never, ever experiencing lack. You're always taking care of us. So we pray for favor on them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Give them a round of applause. We love you, Mark and Mandy. This morning, as we go into the message that I have prepared for you, um, I want to tell you we've been in a series called Death to Life, and we've talked about several aspects of who Christ is over the last several weeks. The first week, we talked about Jesus Christ being the Lamb. Then after that, we talked about his own statements, uh, him saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Then, as we experienced a very significant communion time a few weeks ago, we talked about his statement of being the bread of life. Truly, if we take him in and partake of who he is, he can change us. And then last week, we talked about him in the role of prophet, in the role of priest, and the role of king. Today, my message is entitled, The Crucified Christ. We should be challenged by the words that we find in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It tells us this, that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason or for a reason for the hope that is in us. This letter that was written in 1 Peter chapter 3, we won't talk about anything else there except for that single verse, but the challenge is there, and the challenge stands for the ages, that we are to be a people who know what we believe and know why we believe it, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of those who ask us, what is this hope that you have? Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever had somebody ask you a question about your faith and you didn't have the answer to it? Okay, a good majority of us. Um, sometimes it deserves deeper seeking into the word of God. Sometimes we might not have our theology all formulated at that moment and we think to ourselves, oh, I'm going to look like an idiot if I, if I, if I say something, so I'm going to just hold back. But here's the thing. We believe in our church that what we do on a Sunday is the culmination of what you've lived Monday through Saturday, right? It's the, it's the celebration of all that God is doing and wants to do and where he's leading you and it's prepping you for what lies ahead. So we are a Bible-believing church. We believe that the word of God written over the course of a period of almost 1600 years by more than 40 authors in 66 books, that God, by his own inspiration, delivered that message to men that would write those words for our benefit and for our encouragement, for our correction. And so we focus on the word of God being the center of what we believe because in it we find the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us. So what sense does it make for us to possess the hope of the world and have experienced ourselves but not know why or how to share it with others. I wanna tell you, as a pastor, I don't have it all down put either, down pat, I should say, either. I'm still, even now recently, I've been hungering after the word of God and I've been coming to the place where I want to believe not just what some man has told me to believe, not just what some denomination has encouraged me to believe, but for me to not just take their word for it, but to take the word of God for it. Amen? And to dig deeper into the reality that exists in the word of God. So we don't want to just blindly accept the words of others. We want to see what God's word says about this. So today we opened up our service with an eyewitness account, a dramatized version of what we imagine, the thief hanging on the cross who asked for forgiveness or, for, or who spoke to Christ that day on the cross. And Jesus' words in reply to him are, I will see you today in paradise. As we think about that, we don't have a Good Friday service where we talk about the crucifixion. And historically speaking, today is Palm Sunday. And so we would be talking about the triumphal entry and what that looked like for Jesus to come into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and to have time to spend with his family and his friends before his crucifixion. But because we won't be joining on Friday, I want to jump right into the story of what the crucified Christ would have looked like. Next Sunday, I'll be preaching to you a message, obviously related to Easter, on the resurrected Christ Two great symbols or the greatest symbols of God's power and love for you and for me are shown to us in the events surrounding Easter. They are the cross, which is empty, and they are the tomb, which is empty. The hope we have is made crystal clear through Christ's death and his resurrection, and we need to understand the cornerstones of our faith. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read to you what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It's also on your screen. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The words that we read here are important. Paul is laying out for the Corinthian church really, truly a creed of the early church and the early believers. I want to explain two specific things that are part of the text. When he says that I delivered to you as a first importance in verse 3, what I also received... He's speaking in rabbinical terms as a rabbi or a teacher of the law. And he's saying, I have received this knowledge and now I'm passing it on to you, like a runner in a race would pass a baton onto someone else. It's the exact thing he received and he's handing it off to someone else. It's important that we know the depth of what scripture looks like in its context. The second thing, if you're confused, in verse 6, it says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. They were not all related. They were in the family of Christ, okay? 500 brothers of the faith, most of whom are still alive, though some have, we can read there, died. It says fallen asleep, it's an old term that they would say he's went to sleep with his fathers or with the fathers of his family. It's because they've died. But Paul is saying to them that he's received this, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scripture. And then he's, he's been laying out in all of his letters references back to prophecy and to other places, to Psalm 22 and to other places even that the psalmist would have written about and Isaiah the prophet and what God spoke to him about the things that would transpire in the days of Christ's death and his resurrection. He says that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter I read that and I think to myself, Peter got a special appearance of Jesus as he was resurrected. This scoundrel, Peter, who who was just a crazy wild one in Jesus' bunch, who I could find myself in his sandals, in his shoes, and I could imagine myself being there. And Jesus, loving him, sought to appear to him individually it says and then to the 12 and then he appeared why does it tell us that he appeared to 500 individuals it's telling us that because it's basing the historicity of the cross and the resurrection on the eyewitness account and testimony it's saying that most of them are still alive today some of them are dead but you can go and look them up and find them they will tell you what they saw they have seen the risen Christ We base even to this day, even though we have technology, even though we have cameras and other things, we base the guilt or innocence of those who are brought forth on charges majority of time on eyewitness accounts. So we believe the eyewitnesses. Paul has believed them as well. And it says that he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, the extension of those 12, which would have been probably 70 people or more than that at this point. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So if you're thinking like I do, I'm thinking to myself, wait, Paul wasn't alive. Maybe he he wasn't of age at the time that Christ died. How would he have known he wasn't a disciple? He's not mentioned. It's the road to Damascus where Christ himself appears to Paul. And it says that a light shone around him and that they heard words, those who were his travel companions, Heard the words that were spoken when Jesus himself says, Why are you persecuting me? I love the redemption of the gospel in that Paul, who was the persecutor, has now become, even though this is sad, he has become the persecuted because of his faith. The faith, the very faith that he was persecuting before. There's something really significant that's outside of the text in 1 Corinthians 15. The scholarly consensus is that Paul put these words together as the creed that was known to the early church and that it would have been in the early 50s that he writes from the city of Ephesus to the Corinthians and that these phrases are taken out of the early construct of the 30s. Literally within months, Of Christ's death, the church that had formed had begun to say, listen, we've got to understand what we believe and why we believe it. And this phrasing shows up in other places outside of 1 Corinthians 15 where we can see that Paul was taking the words of the early church, that creed, and he's sharing it again as a a back to the basics sort of moment for those who were in Corinth. The scholarly consensus is important because Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says that he went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, and he stayed with him for 15 days. After Paul is saved on the road to Damascus and he goes into that city, he begins to travel, but he's going to go see Peter because he wants to interview him. That word in the Greek is interview. He went to go interview him to find out all the details of the death and resurrection. So he goes there to hear Peter's words. So what I'm trying to say is this, is that the evidence points to this as the first creed of the early days of the flourishing church. It's important because it already is encapsulating the belief we still hold today about Christ being crucified and raised to life again on our behalf. When we talk about the crucified Christ, it's important for you to understand this is a historical fact. It's known to others outside or what we would call extra-biblical resources or sources. There's a man named Tacitus who was a Roman official and he was a historian for the Romans. Listen to what he says. He says this, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty of crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition, he's hinting at the resurrection of the body, Thus, checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. So here he's talking about Nero blaming the Jewish people for the insurrection that's happening in the city of Rome itself. And he's giving a historical record of what he understands are the facts. Another, we can find, and you think, well, wow, I didn't show up to church for a history lesson. It's important for you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Another individual who is extra biblical, outside of the biblical text. His name is Pliny, poor guy. Pliny the Younger. I guess there was a Pliny the Older. That's really stinky. I'm sorry, man. But anyway, he was a Roman governor. So I guess he really couldn't get his name made fun of. He was a Roman governor of a city in modern-day Turkey, northwest Turkey. He's writing to the emperor Trajan to ask about the great multitude of every age and class who are in that city and that province who are called Christians. And he writes these words. They are in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it is light. When they sing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. They've bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds. To never commit any fraud, theft, or adultery. Never to falsify their words or deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which it was their custom to then separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. It sounds kind of like what we do on Sundays. We get together after church and go for lunch sometimes. You're invited to stay today for lunch. You don't have to go anywhere. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But there's something there that he says in his note or his writing to the emperor. He says, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. And I thought to myself, goodness gracious, that seems kind of weird. Isn't all food ordinary? No, in those days there were rumors that they had become cannibals because they had heard the words of Jesus Christ himself that he said, eat my flesh and if you don't, you're not part of me. Drink my blood and if you don't, you're not part of me. So there was this, this rumor mill that had started that had caused people to believe that they were getting together in secret locations and cutting up humans and eating them in cannibalistic ways. And so he's writing to the emperor and he's saying, I've seen it for myself. It's ordinary. They're people. They're, just, they're gathering for food. But they've, they've sang songs to, to Christ as if to a God. And they are holding themselves to a set of beliefs There's also evidence from Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian. Evidence from the Babylonian Talmud and other resources that are outside of the Bible. So I want to say that to you this morning to tell you it's important for you to know what you believe and why You believe it. Crucifixion was a gruesome historical method of capital punishment. The victim would be tied or nailed to a large wooden beam and left to hang for several days until eventual death from exhaustion or asphyxiation. Sometimes their bodies would be left to decompose on the crosses. It was a common occurrence where you could walk through a city or walk into a city. And as you're traveling the road, you would see crosses lined up there with the dead. And with above their heads, you would see the evidence or not the evidence, but you would see the, um, the crime, the accusation in their handwriting that was written to hang there and say, this guy was a thief, this guy was a murderer, this guy was a this. So that as you walked by, here's the deal. It was meant to uh, not inspire, well, we could say that, to inspire caution. Because you would see that they died for that offense and then you would think, well, if they found this joker, they're gonna find me. It was something for people to see so that they would not do the same thing and commit the same crime. Ravi Zacharias, who's a who's an apologist for the Christian faith, he's someone who, if you don't understand that word, it's not an apology like I'm sorry. He's an apologist for the Christian faith. He's a defender of the Christian faith. He's an intellectual guy. His ministry is absolutely incredible. The tagline for them is helping the believer think and helping the thinker believe. He's got some incredible resource material. And he says this, the cross stands as a centerpiece of the gospel message of Christ and the kingdom of God because it recognizes the dastardliness of what sin is and the beauty and the love of what God's forgiveness is. The cross is the centerpiece of the gospel. The truth is we cannot know the deep power of the cross unless we first realize our need for that cross and the Savior who died upon it. The cross shows us that God in Christ was doing something for us that we could never accomplish for ourselves. Jesus died on the cross for you and for me as a ransom and as a redeemer, as a savior and as a sacrifice and as a substitute for us. The cross has eternal implications for the entirety of humanity. Not just for those who believe, but for those who have chosen to not believe the truth of the cross. So go with me to Romans chapter 5. I want you to think about this as we go into Romans. Paul writes this letter to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So there are Jews and Gentiles living in Rome who had become believers in Jesus, in Christ the Messiah. And as they were there, they started a church. They're gathering together. They're the saints of the Lord. In this room today, you are the ones who have gathered who are loved by God and who are the saints of the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. So he's writing to the Roman church. I want you to understand the significance of this. He's writing a letter into the capital city of the kingdom who's responsible for crucifying their Savior, Think about this, and believers have become believers in faith there in this city. In chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 of Romans, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Can I tell you something this morning? Nothing that you have in Christ is earned by you. Nothing. I love where we read about Abraham and all of his failings, all of the different misdeeds, and that he thought, well, let me do it this way. Well, let me go this place. Well, let me. And he had all of these mistakes that had been committed in his walk and journey of faith. And yet in Hebrews, we find that it's by his faith. The Bible says his unwavering faith. And I think to myself, and I've heard it been said, it's not because it's faith that he possessed. How many of you have ever had a hard time in life and your faith has wavered? Come on, that's you and me, right? That's all of us in this room who have faith. And so it's not that he didn't waver in his human attempt to receive God's goodness, but it's truly by faith that God made him perfect, Made him available to be the one who is the father of our faith because of faith that God gave him, not in and of himself. So it says here in this verse, in verses one and two, it says, We've been justified by faith. Even faith itself is a gift from God. Because when I fall or falter in my faith, Christ is still enough. Come on. He's still enough. Amen? Jump down to verse 6 of the same chapter, Romans 5. It says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even or dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Let me stop there and look up at me for just a second. I want you to hear this. I've done my research. Those who were labeled sinners as a result of their deeds, Christ died for them. While they were sinning and even without the hope of knowing that there would be a Savior, Christ died for them he died for us. Amen? Verse 9 says this, since therefore we have now been justified, not by our works. What does it say there? By his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Look up at me. The wrath of God is coming. It will be experienced by those who have not received his love. It will be received by those who have rejected his love. There is a real eternity. We are already living in it because we are spirit beings living inside of a body. But when we die, we will go to be in the presence of the Lord if we have accepted his love, his forgiveness, his finished work on the cross, and the empty tomb as our hope but those who haven't will not experience the same thing. It says this, verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, verse 11 goes on to say, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God. It says, for while we were enemies. I want you to understand, it's not saying that while we were enemies one of another. The true definition there is while we were standing in opposition to God himself, he still sent that perfect sacrifice to die on our behalf. Man, this is something worth getting excited about. Amen? Amen. Christ himself says that he is the only way to the Father. And if you believe that, it's worth celebrating. If you don't yet believe that, it's worth considering. Considering the fact that God, through Jesus Christ, has provided our redemption. Let's listen in to the conversation that Jesus has in John chapter three with a man named Nicodemus. I want you to hear not just John 3.16, I want you to hear the context of what goes on. In verse 12 of chapter 3 in John, Jesus speaking. He's calling Nicodemus out. He says this in verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Which is Jesus' common term for himself. Verse 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Look up at me for just a moment from your scriptures. Verse 14 and 15 might sound really weird <laughs> if you don't understand what happened in the wilderness in the Old Testament. But the Bible says here in verse 14, Jesus is saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, there was a miraculous deliverance that was happening in the wilderness. As they traveled through, they found themselves in the company of snakes. And snakes that bit people were causing death. Yet God gave Moses this this instrument, this symbol, For them to have something that when they looked upon it, they would in faith believe salvation was theirs and they would immediately live and not die. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that he he is that image. Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. Nicodemus would have remembered the words that were in the Torah. He would have remembered about Moses and their traveling through the wilderness. He would have known exactly what Jesus was saying in this moment. And he says, so that whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, would be saved and have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish But have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. As Jesus says there that God loved the world so much he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world might be saved through him. lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Would you stand with me today as the worship team begins to play and the lights go off? I want to tell you this, that he loves you with an undying love. God loves you so much that he sent his son to experience death. There's a part of our theology that we call Christ the incarnated God. It's truly that God himself came down from heaven to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life and to die a death on a cross that was excruciating, not only because of the human ramifications of what they suffered that day, but because of who Christ was and what he was accomplishing in that moment. And he's done it for you and for me. If a doctor prescribes you medicine, in order for it to take its effect, you have to ingest it and take it in so that it can do its work. This is what Christ was saying when he was saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, because he wanted us to come to grips with the fact that we are to have him inside of us. Let him consume you today. I want you to close your eyes with me. In this moment leading up to Easter and as we've talked about why we believe what we believe about Jesus Christ being crucified, I don't wanna miss the chance that in this room there might be someone here today and you have yet to believe in him as your savior. If that's you, I want you to take a bold step right now and lift up your hand and say, Pastor, that's me, I need prayer. If there's anybody in this room today That would say that all eyes are closed nobody's looking around we're not going to embarrass you but i want you to boldly step out in faith and raise your hand right now today if you're here today also and you're a believer and you say you know pastor hinted at the unwavering faith and you're standing in a place that you feel like you might be wavering and you need the confident assurance that blessed assurance that jesus is yours Lift your hand up today, I wanna pray with you as well. There are those in this room that are lifting their hands. Keep your eyes closed and heads bowed. Everyone, thank you, thank you. There are hands going up. I wanna pray a prayer over you today, but I wanna tell you something. Those of you who feel like you're in the place of unwavering faith, have confidence in the God of old, the ancient one. Who knew even before the world was formed that he would send the remedy that we could have and Christ died for our sins and he was raised again to new life and he was he did that for us on our behalf so that we could experience that abundant life and I believe today he can give you that peace that you need in the midst of whatever you face father right now I pray for those who've raised their hands have said pastor it's me In, in essence they're saying God it's me I'm standing and I'm asking you for help today to help me be confident in the faith that I have knowing that it's nothing that I can do or have done or will do but it's only you and the accomplished work on the cross thank you father for the peace that passes all understanding that can be ours today